Also, just a, just a real blessing. You know, we've all been praying for the Lucrezia family, and, and a number of them are here this morning with us. Uh, so we're just thrilled to have you guys, and uh, grateful you could join us in worship this morning too. So, um, well, as a way of just uh, beginning our time first, most of you guys got the email. Uh, yes, you can, you guys know what's coming. Uh, we're really thankful the Lord uh, showed up in some great ways Thursday night, and uh, it's only Him. Uh, so we got not just an approval, but a unanimous approval uh, for the space. That's that's a big deal, and uh, great. Glad Jim is thrilled. <laughs> so, uh, but just continue to pray uh, that God would put the things in order that He needs to. Um, we'll be in touch on details and stuff like that. But that was the that was the big deal. That was the thing we really needed. And and one of the coolest things I think just just sitting there, I I left the hearing. Ours we were last to go on the agenda, and there was a. A group that went right before us, it was dealing with commercial real estate, and, and they got denied. And I was like, oh, man, I hope they're not in a bad mood. I hope ours is going to go through. And we got up there by about 8.30, 8.45, went about two hours, and the Lord just was so good to us. And I've always prayed uh, since the beginning of this church that, that God would do things that could only be explained by him. I've said that from the beginning. And I'm telling you, there's, there's no explanation for a unanimous approval when they have never given those. Our attorney wrote us and said, I've never seen that in 10 years of uh, doing houses of worship in Paramus. And, and the Lord is just really kind to us. So uh, this is the beginning. And I, and I thought with uh, this exciting news, with the rejoicing, with, with seeing God show up and, and literally turn the hearts of, of men to, to hear our prayers. I mean, we prayed and fasted all week long. I, I hope you're encouraged at seeing God answer your prayers. Um, as I was sitting there Thursday night, I was, I was watching your prayers be answered over time. I mean, in the beginning, it was the kind of thing where I was like, man, I don't know this is going to go through. I'm a little concerned. They're bringing up some good points. And then by the end, we're high-fiving, hugging, and saying that this is a great thing. They're more on board than I am. So I don't know how that happens other than that God is in it. So, um, and I don't think it could be more appropriate to where in God's providence he lands us today in the book of Ephesians with spiritual warfare. I, I mean, as I was even Writing, I thought, that's so true that as God advances his kingdom, as Jesus leads us, you can expect greater opposition, you can expect more shots to be taken. Uh, That doesn't mean that God's not in it, it means you need to pray more, we need to put on the armor, we need to be more watchful, not ignorant, that there is a third party in all this. Um, And so I think this is more than appropriate for us as a, as a faith family uh, to really understand how Satan works, that demons are real, that Satan is real. These aren't just fictitious characters that we make up in our minds, that actually these last remaining verses describe in detail who he is, what he does, what he's about, and how we're supposed to respond to that. Uh, so because this is such an, uh, just an important topic, uh, here's what I'm going to do, just so you guys are all really clear. Um, so, so here's how we're going to break it up. I'm, we're going to look at kind of the first 10 to 12 verses um, today, but it's going to be more of an introduction to spiritual warfare, to the spiritual realm, to the things like Satan and demons. Okay, and then next we're going to look at the same verses and get more practical. How do we respond? What do we do? And then after that, third week, we'll roll into the armor of God being really specific, really practical. But I think this is just a, a really important time for us, an important time for us not to be unaware but aware, um, and so that, that's how this morning's going to go. So uh, as long as you know that, um, I, I'm expecting no emails this week going, hey, you didn't touch on this, 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 and this. We're going to get there. Uh, I just want to give more of us an overview as we get going together. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. God, thank you that you're so kind to us. We don't deserve it. 
Um, God, thank you that you deserve all glory and praise for anything that happens in the church that you saved, that you sealed, that you redeemed with your own blood, that you bought as a possession for yourself. God, we realize that you don't fundamentally exist to bless us, but we exist to serve and worship you. And so God, help us to respond rightly. God, may we see it as more of a need to be on our knees in prayer. God, more of a need to be uh, holding the sword of the Spirit and learning the scriptures and knowing who you are in your character and your attributes. And, and God, may we know more of Christ, the one who conquered not only Satan, but sin and death itself. Um, lead us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here's what Paul is going to do. Paul is going to try and land the plane for us um, at the end of Ephesians here. And what he's going to do is he's going to take the last 139 verses, okay, that we've been studying, and he's going to try to roll it all up for us and show us, okay, this is how you apply all of that. This is how you put all that into practice. And this is how there's more going on than just you guys loving your kids and your families and your children and working well, learning how to walk wisely and being unified. He's going to lift your eyes a bit to the supernatural. He's going to say, hey, there's, there's another realm happening. There's another war going on and we're involved in that. So it's really key, it's really important that we know it's not just us and God, right? There, there's, a, there's a third party and that's Satan and his adversaries. And you can't be unaware of that. Okay, you can't be ignorant of that. You have to factor that into everything. And I think we live in a day where through psychology, through explanation, through, we look at biological reasons, we love to diminish and omit everything that's spiritual, Right, So we like to explain away everything opposed to what is really true and going on. Now look, I, I know there's people who completely over-dramatize Satan, right? Satan's in everything. He made you eat the donut. He made you cheat on the test. Like that's not healthy either. So we're not talking about putting him in categories or putting him in places that aren't right or healthy. We're talking about rightly learning about him, who he is, what he's like as an enemy, and then walking forward strongly with Christ in our lives, Christ before us, Christ behind us, knowing that he is already defeated defeated Satan, sin, and death. He's already the big conqueror. He's our champion. He's our king. But it doesn't mean you're ignorant. It doesn't mean you, you, you are unaware of that he is real. And so just a bit of context to put us here this morning. Let's get caught up on the book of Ephesians, right? Ephesians is a letter that follows suit with almost a lot of New Testament letters that Paul writes, and he starts out the first number of chapters declaring to you and explaining who you are in Christ, Okay, he starts out talking about this gospel, this good news that Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and he adopts, he rescues, he saves, he seals people with his sacrifice alone, with his own blood, as he resurrects himself, giving us his very spirit inside of us that seals us, adopts us, and makes us a part of this family, and then gives us a future inheritance, Right, So as he lays before us these spiritual blessings we learn that are found in Christ, he started showing us this mind-blowing reality that before the foundation of earth was laid, what did he do? He set his affections upon you. He set his love upon you. He set his great grace upon you, sends Jesus to validate that. Jesus dies, redeems you from your sin, rescues you from that. Then he gives you the Holy Spirit, which seals you. And then you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And what happens is he says it'll take ages upon ages upon ages for you to see how rich you are in Christ. That you're the most wealthy man on the planet. You're the most wealthy daughter on the planet if you have Christ because he is of infinite worth of himself. And so when you have Christ, you have all. 
right? Fundamentally, we've been learning that. And then what happens is he reminds us that this Christ, who is now our Christ, is what? Seated above every ruler, every power, every dominion of every age. What does that mean? Christ, who owns the forces of hell, is your Christ. Now that's gonna be deeply encouraging for us as we look this morning at Ephesians chapter six. Then chapter two, Paul leans into greater detail this great salvation. He says we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Right, and what did Christ do? He came and made us alive with Christ by his grace alone. And then he gives us good works to do, right? So we learn that now we're, we're of his workmanship. We do works that are empowered by the grace of God, sustained by the grace of God for the glory of God. So your work is not secular and sacred. If you're a Christian, all of your work is sacred. Like if you're a plumber or a janitor or a truck driver or an architect or a nurse or a stay-at-home mom, my job's not any more valuable than yours. Like in Christ, all of our work is deeply valuable to him. So we learned that as well, right? And that rolled into how we're no longer excluded from the purposes, plans of God. How Jew and Gentile are grafted together, right? We see this mystery being made known. Then in, then in chapter three, Paul just goes on about how he just can't believe he's a steward of this good news, right? He can't believe that he gets to be a steward of the riches in Christ. That he's not only a receiver of it, being the least of the saints, he gets to go tell people about it. And then we said how we're caught up in that, right? We're caught up in the telling, the going, the sending. And then we learned Further, that as God forms this church in chapter three, it's actually causing angels to worship. Right, how there's, there's, there's more going on than just here. As the church gathers, as the church bonds together, bears together, works together, there's actually an, an angelic host, a cosmos that is giving greater glory to God as they watch sinners being rescued and walking in love together. Mind-blowing, right? And then we hit chapter four. Chapter four, the door hinge of the whole book. Right, where all of a sudden, all of your position, all of your great realities in Christ become what? Practice. Now listen, you can't reverse them. Right, we learned that you have to start with position before you get to practice. Otherwise, you're gonna be a legalistic, moralistic, just guy who loves doing good things, loves praying prayers, loves going to church, loves acting like a Christian, but you've got no rock, right? You got no roots. And so we learned that you gotta know who you are in Christ before you do anything, because that compels you and causes you to be and do. And so we saw all the ways that we work as a faith family as, as, we, as we live. And he started chapter four with that awesome line, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling, right? So we learned now we start walking in light of this. And we learned how we live in unity, how we serve the church, how we put off the old self and the new self, how we walk in God's will, how we don't become sectarians who just withdraw from culture and become monks. We also don't become syncretists who you know, just become just like culture, look no different, but we walk wisely with wisdom around outsiders. We love being good missionaries and sharing the good grace of God with others. Here's what Paul's gonna show us dealing with the last couple weeks, he brings all that up to here to say, yes, Ephesians is about your salvation. Yes, Ephesians is about walking wisely. Yes, Ephesians is about parenting your kids and growing in grace as husband and wife and, and doing all these things and working well in your vocation. All of your work is worship. We learned that last week. He's gonna show here, if you overlook, though, or neglect the supernatural, then all of those lanes will be attacked and destroyed, possibly, by the works of the enemy. You can't be ignorant in all of this. You can't be ignorant that in your walking, there's a third party. And certainly Paul makes this clear when he says here in verse 10, finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, so what's Paul's assumption? Paul's assumption is that you're gonna need strength in this walk. Chapter four, verse one, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You're gonna need strength in this walk. It's going to take a strength, and it's going to take a strength that you and I don't have. That's why he says, be strong who? In the Lord. Not in Mike, not in Jeremy, Jen, Sarah. No, in the Lord, right? So we appeal to our great Christ who's in us, who gave us his Holy Spirit. Go back to chapter one. He enables us to walk with strength, with power, and the ability to overcome these angelic forces. So he lays before us just right off the bat, yes, this walk is a walk, but it's not a stroll. Can we just be honest for a minute? Like, like every time, the New Testament assumes that when it says walk in a manner worthy, he doesn't mean that this is like an easy walk. Yes, it's a walk in the sense of its pace. Yes, it's a walk in the sense of there are highs and lows. Yes, it's a walk in the sense of it's consistent. But it's a labor. It's a war. It is persevering. Man, the Christian life is not easy. It is deeply blessed. It is deeply glorious. It has deep benefits. Totally worth the walk. But it's not easy. That's why I say we have eternity to rest all the time. Work hard, labor, toil, listen. Christians don't get to retire. Christians get to die. Right? And if we don't know that off, out of the gate, then we're going to be really miserable as Christians because we're going to think, well, God saved me only to bless me and give my life one just ease and comfort. And then things start happening, and what do we do? We labor, we walk, we persevere, we, we move through it. Now, you're going to need strength because you're going to have a lot of things working against you. And this is where we kind of get this overview, right? Now, before you even get to Satan and his adversaries, you have your own flesh working against you, your own brokenness. Now listen, you don't need the devil for that war. Okay, you don't need his help for that. We're by nature born sinners. We've learned that in Ephesians. And so we still wage war against these residual effects of the fall. So what this means is every new creation in Christ, every person who's trusted solely in the person, power, and work of Jesus, there is a war going on, Galatians 5 says, among your new spirit from God and the flesh that's in you, right? It's, it's like in Romans 7 where Paul says, I do all the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. It's like you've got this corpse tied to you that you can't shake off, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the trajectory we're going, though, until future glory. Future glory, the corpse is permanently gone, fully like Jesus, one with him, made in perfection, with God, right? But until then, it's a trajectory of progressive sanctification, right? Becoming more like the image of the Son, more trying to get the old corpse off of you. We learned a lot of that in chapter 5 of Ephesians, so in a sense, the battle's not just outside of you, right? We learn the battle's also inside of you. Now, when you take your own sinfulness that's already sufficient, right, in this war, and you add in Satan and demons, it makes it overwhelming, right? It makes it seemingly unbearable when you become aware of this. Now, now maybe some of you come from backgrounds where they made too much of Satan and his demons, so you actually never had any responsibility for your own sin. So you were always able to pull the Genesis 3 card, right? Well, the devil made me do it, right? Just like Eve. No, no, you're responsible. 
No, he, he might have tempted you, lured you, enticed you, but you sinned. Right, we need, to, we need to own that. We're responsible for how we react to it. So we have enemy inside of us, our own flesh, an enemy outside of us, which is Satan. We must be aware of this. This is why he says in verse 11 to remember that he's aggressive and difficult. Put on the armor of God, which we'll get to in a few weeks. There's equipment we gotta wear. We'll, we'll get to that later. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not man and woman. Like, like people aren't our enemy. You get that? Like, they're captives. Right, the Bible says we're supposed to free the captives, make them captors to Christ. Right, they're, they're, they're caught up in this blindness of darkness. So there, there's, there's the enemy is this, these, these forces, which is Satan and his adversaries. So before you came to Christ, this would be true of the Ephesians or any of us today, you were caught up in the kingdom of darkness. But you were over and under the, the prince of the power of this air. Right, Satan has dominion to a degree, not authority, but God's given him some control. First John 5 says that. Right, this world is under the power of the evil one. There is, there is a sense in which Satan has, has ways of going in. God lets him, God's, God allows him, and so he just goes after people. Right, and so until you're rescued from him, until Jesus rescues you from the kingdom of darkness, to borrow the language of 1 Peter 2, 9, right? He delivered you from the power of darkness and the domain of darkness into what is marvelous light. So, so, so Jesus isn't like shy about it. He rips you out. He rips you out of his clutches, and now he has no longer any dominion over you, no power over you, no authority over you. But until then, you're living in the kingdom of darkness, whether you want to believe it or agree, agree with it or not. Everyone is either driven by Christ or driven by Satan. And so he's showing us that there's this, this separation that, that comes here. And so what this means is, I think 2 Corinthians 10 puts it well. It describes how we were captive to false ideologies, wrong views, wrong thinking. And when Christ rescued us, he rescued us from Satan's lying, damning, deceptive ideologies that were raised up against the true knowledge of God, right? Now we're gonna get into later what Satan uses. He uses a world system that is almost always false religion, right? Paul calls it in Timothy the doctrine of demons. He loves to get you on board with anything that thinks you can earn your salvation. He loves to bring all types of all-inclusive belief systems, whether they're extreme in legalism or extreme in just, you know, atheistic, blatant immorality where you've got no moral compass, no conscience at all. He'll put you in whatever category possible so you think you've got to do more, earn it, or just ignore it. And we'll see that that's, that's his way of doing a lot of that for us. And so um, we see here these, these profound realities that there is this darkness, this world that we're delivered from, and the natural question to be answered is, well, who is he? I mean, we gotta know who our enemy is, right? So just real quick, Satan was not the pitchfork horns guy you learned about growing up when you go trick-or-treating you know, with your kids, or some of you still go trick-or-treating, that's weird, but you go do that, and you're gonna do that in Halloween probably with your kids, and you're gonna see people dressed up that, that doesn't actually look like Satan. They're gonna say they're the devil or say, but they're not. He was actually a beautiful angel. 
named Lucifer. God created him, but he wasn't God. He was not equal with God. It's very important we understand this. And what happened, right? He doesn't even share all of God's attributes. God is everywhere present. Satan isn't. God knows everything. Satan doesn't. And and God makes the angelic host to worship him, and in pride, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, right, wants to be God. God says that that isn't going to happen. Banishes him from heaven. Creates hell, a place for Satan and all of his followers, And so what does Satan do? He somehow convinces a third of the angelic host to come with him and wage war against the king of the universe, which is an endless, endless try. It's worthless. He will never win, yet he tries. So now his goal is to get everyone along with him to not know the true God, not worship the true God, but to be under his rule, under his authority, in his pride and arrogance. And if you are a believer, to sway you, to discourage you, to cause you to doubt. And so that, that's his goal. It's also very important to note here that Paul says that this happens on a cosmic level. Okay, this, this in itself helped me a bit. Because the universe is infinite. I mean, our, our universe is massive. The one that God made, the one that God spoke into existence Right, So this universe is massive, and we know the bigger our telescopes get, the deeper we can see into space, the more staggered we are at the infinite ends, right? So the question is, why would God make this massive universe that has infinite ends when it seems like all that's really happening is on this little tiny dot called Earth, right? What about all that space? Like, God, what are you using it for? Are you shooting arrows? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what what he's doing. Target practice for miles and trillions of miles. I don't know what he's doing, but I think this actually gives us a window into because the Bible will call that realm the angelic realm, the supernatural realm. And this is is pretty, pretty amazing because this is not the only place where stuff is happening. Do you realize that there are Tens of thousands times tens of thousands times thousands. The, an uncountable number in the Greek language of angels that are actually warring in that realm. Rome, Revelation 12 discusses this. Right? We see glimpses of kind of that activity, right? Do you remember when when uh, God sends an angel to deliver an answered prayer for Daniel, and what happens? The angel's held up by a demon before he even gets there. Like, there, there are places in Scripture you start to see that there is this, this realm, there is this activity happening that is in the cosmic levels. Uncountable. Now, there are many more holy angels than demons, because it only took a third, Right? So there's an uncountable number of angels, and there's a countless number of demons. But there's activity going on, there's supernatural warfare going on. Now, why do I point this out? I just simply point it out to remind you that this is massive. To to not be under a rock. To lift your eyes a bit at the spiritual forces that are at work. So there are countless demons in Satan's army and arsenal. 
So we must be aware. Now, how does, how does Satan operate? If this thing is so massive, so big, how does Satan operate? He, he operates against the people of God through a system that I'm going to call the world. Now, I don't mean planet Earth. I mean the system that's built into this world where he uses human agencies to accomplish his means. So not only do you have the flesh warring against you inside of you, not only do you have a real adversary outside of you warring against you, but you have now the means of him warring against you using a world system. Now, real quick, let's take a little detour. No Christian has to fear being indwelt by a demon or Satan. You will see nowhere in Scripture that gives evidence that a demon can take up residence in a Christian. You will see Jesus often cast out demons, always in a non-believer. You will see bizarre behavior caused by non-believers, yelling at Jesus in the synagogue, jumping into fires, just doing bizarre things. Self-mutilation, you'll, you'll see lots of different things that they cause, but he can never take up residence. We're the temple of the Spirit of God. The devil has no place there. He has no authority there. Now, we'll see. There are things outside he can do, but he cannot get inside. So we never need to fear that. I've, I've heard so many, I've, I've heard crazy talk. There's a besetting sin or something in someone who, who's a clear Christian. They think that he needs to be exercised. It's crazy. My opinion. I don't think it's biblical. I don't think you're going to find it. I think we need to pray against Satan and his adversaries, not literally being exercised out of the man, but being kept away from the man. Because there are places in Scripture where we see that, that God does allow people to be affected. Job was hammered by Satan. Jesus even allowed Satan to, to advance against Peter, but always for God's purposes in their lives for his glory. So Peter was used, right, to eventually deny Jesus three times and then deliver from that, comforted from that, to then share and comfort other brothers who find themselves in that situation. We see Job, who's hammered by Satan externally, who God gives, says, okay, you can do that. But what happens? It proves that saving faith cannot be broken, and it gave Job pure, greater worship to God. So there are purposes in it that God might allow for the good of our souls and the glory of his name. Further, there's nothing in the Bible that associates demonization with moral evil. Now, this may surprise you. Okay, but, but, but here's the thing. Demon-possessed people, they manifest bizarre behavior, but it doesn't cause them to do moral evil. Like, like demons can't make people sinful. They're already sinful. Now, what they can do, understandably, is overpower an already sinful person and cause them to do bizarre stuff. But, but moral evil is already in our bent. We're already bent to do that, to rebel against God, not want God, not desire God, to do our own thing, be our own God, worship ourselves. Here, here we see that, that, that there's a big difference here. So no demon can take up residence in a believer. Now, when, when I say Satan uses the system of the world, I explain that I, I'm talking about this order in the world. And I think this is what comes at believers. Because we love to believe as Christians that we don't really have to live in a hostile world, right? And I think we're a little bit blind to a lot of it. We've got roots in our, just in our heritage as Americans where we've got a lot of gospel revival, a lot of things going on, and so maybe superficially it was kind of dumbed down for a little bit, but I think we're seeing continuously the world system being used to advance the kingdom of darkness. I don't think you can argue with that. 
I think we're seeing more of it here in the United States than we've seen before, just over time. Now, please remember something here. I bolded it, highlighted it. Listen, the devil is God's devil. As we hear all this, God owns him. God sets the parameters how he operates. He has no authority outside of the sovereign control of God. That's why we learned in Ephesians chapter one and also Colossians that Jesus Christ is above all authorities, powers, rulers, and authorities. So he is the power over all people, whether spiritual or physical or angels. It's under God's control, but God may permit Satan or his demons to do certain things to affect believers, not from the inside, but from the outside. He might. We have to understand his primary work is against believers by developing this world system and bringing these bearing temptations on their flesh. So I'm gonna land it with this. One of the primary and leading edges of Satan's efforts I believe in scripture you see is false religions. Now I want to explain for a minute why. Number one, I said that that Paul calls it an interesting thing. Everything that's a false religion, he calls doctrines of demons. It's, It's interesting. Now I think this is why Satan loves to distort our minds and bring us up in other things to obtain right relationship and reconciliation with the God of the universe. Because he knows by nature human beings are religious animals. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have a conscience and we have a will that knows, according to Romans 2.15, that we've got a moral law written on our hearts. Now, if we have a moral law written on our hearts, then we know there has to be a cause for that. So cause and effect naturally leads every person to God, whatever their idea of God is. So, because I've got a moral law written on my heart, there has to be a lawgiver, which means there has to be a cause to have that to happen. Now, there was a great cause. It was God, who is moral, who is a moral deity. And so, by cause and effect, that leads us to, okay, well, there is a God who's moral, who wrote this moral law on my heart. Now, what do I do about this immorality in me? How do I cure this? How do I fix this? This is, this is the God consciousness that Satan knows about in every person. Every person who's born. So what does he do? He wants to advert every human being into a false system to believe everything but the very one who came in the person and form of God who was fully God, fully man, died the death for us, took all of our sin on him, absorbed the wrath of God, rose again, validated it, and offers freedom. He wants to avert you and everyone from that main true reality, that Jesus is king, that Jesus has full authority. He wants you to think you can be better and you can work harder, you can do more prayers, you can lay on your mat, you go feed more people, and or he'll take you to the other side and say, hey, just numb your conscience, don't believe anything, God doesn't exist, you just float. He's the author of all those. He's behind all those. You realize that? Everything outside of Jesus, the only source of truth, he's behind that? I don't think that's a crazy statement. I think it's absolutely accurate. I don't know how you can see it any other way. And we have to be aware of that. And so the one thing that they all have in common, every single worldly system outside of the true one, which is Christ, is that salvation and reconciliation with the true God has to be 
earned. And so he'll tie you up for your entire life, chasing everything but the shed blood of Jesus. And so he uses false religion as his primary vehicle. Why? Because man is a natural worshiper. We all want to worship something, so he'll either get you to worship yourself or worship something outside of Jesus. He'll lure you, entice you, distract you, discourage you, come at you. He'll do everything he can, anything he can, which is why the Christian walk is a warring walk, which is why God claims up and calls people to do it together to encourage, to remind, to stir up. I mean, when you, we, we talk about this all the time. When you retract from community, when you go out to your little isolated you know, place, peninsula or island, man, that's when all of a sudden, spiritually, you lose joy, you start to drown, you start to doubt, you start to be discouraged. You just start feeling like you're getting shot from everywhere. Right? That's why God's saying, don't stop gathering, don't stop. My church is good, it's a refuge, it's a haven. It's a place where you can be reminded of what's true, ground you can stand on, a place for comfort and rest amidst the struggles of this life. And so Satan invents religions to diminish the guilt that we have over our sin, the natural guilt that every person feels, whether they acknowledge it or not. John says the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the atheist knows he's got a morality problem. He can try to put it somewhere else, but he knows he's got it. Same with the real religious guy. He knows he's got a real religious, a real morality problem, but he'll try to do everything he can to cover it up. And he doesn't rest in the shed blood of Jesus. It's an all-inclusive system. I want to just, just end with this as we consider these things. This is a word to the church, not just individuals. Like, like this, is, this is not just a word to the Ephesian people individually, but to the Ephesians. So this is a word not just to you and I, but to you and I as a part of church at Bergen. Jesus loves us. Satan hates us. Jesus has plans for us. Satan has plans to utterly oppose us. Do you, do you believe that? Most Christians don't. Most Christians, and I think just even in our world, we live in this therapeutic culture where you know what God is? God's reduced to a life coach where he says, here, I'm gonna come alongside you, give you a bunch of tips. This is how you be a better you. This is how you grow in a more of you. It's just greater idolatry of yourself. So here, do this, self-esteem, all these, you know, self-help here. Let's get you going. God's just there to help, support, encourage. So what does that do? It makes much of us. It doesn't make much of him. And I'm telling you, God does not fundamentally exist to bless you. God does not fundamentally exist to clean you up, make you look like a better you. He, he fundamentally exists so you worship and serve him because he's making you look more like him. Like you're not, you're not looking more like yourself. I mean, that's the whole point of 2 Corinthians 5. You're a new creation, right? The old is gone. You want to get that corpse off. You want to grow in grace, look more like Jesus, be more conformed to the image of his son. You know all that you've received in Christ. You're like, Christ is yours. Satan has no authority, no power, no dominion. You're with the one who already won and is going to win. You're on the winning team. 
Right? So you don't need to worry about the doubts and discouragement, the way he lures and entices, drags you away, because you know how the end happens. We want to rescue others from the dominion of darkness and let them see the marvelous light. The Christian life is war. Listen, the closer you get to Jesus, the more resistance you'll get. The more you advance God's kingdom, the more shots you'll take. And you either stand in the truth of Jesus and his shed blood for you and what he is doing and calling you into, or you listen to everybody else. And listen, as a church, this couldn't be more appropriate. Like, like it's not like time to sit back and like slow down the prayer. Like, it, like it's time for us to go to corporate prayer at the end of the month. To like cancel your plans and gather with the faith family. Get a babysitter. I mean, it, we, we don't have time to mess around. Like, like this is what's against us. So as God is opening doors, as God is moving us forward, you bet stuff's gonna heighten. You bet Satan's gonna, not gonna take a sabbatical from church at Bergen. Like, he's gonna come all the more intensely. And you know what we're gonna see? Jesus all the more gloriously overcome him and trample him and destroy him. But it's not gonna be easy. I've said this since day one. Church planting is not easy. Being a part of the church is not easy. But it is gloriously rewarding. And Jesus is gloriously comforting and worthy and worthwhile. So as God has called us into this, as God seems to be doing some great things, as we rejoice rightly, we all the more rightly put on the armor which we'll be walking through together. We all the more rightly are aware that he schemes. We're all the more aware of how he loves to get in and cause discouragement and doubt and frustration. We all the more aware how he wants to come in and, and cause disunity and not unity. We're all the more aware of that, so we fight together. We walk alongside one another together for the glory of God and the good of Bergen County that we'd see many brought out of darkness into marvelous light. Now, how do we do that? That's next week, all right? Let's pray. God, thank you just for maybe even just giving us awareness today. God, I just believe that's all you wanted for us, to just first consider that there is a real enemy, a real adversary who does have power, who does have influence, who is at work in those who believe and don't believe. God, we pray you protect our church, protect your church. God, we pray you would build us up as soldiers in Christ Jesus, as strong men and women in the faith, of people who love going to battle together. God, may you cultivate a culture here that is one of just encouragement and life and keep on and cheerleading God, let us be aware of false doctrines and false systems. God, keep your church rooted on the only thing that is true, which is that Jesus alone is supreme and infinitely worthy, that he was God, that he came and lived our life for us, that he performed for us, that he died for us, that he absorbed the wrath of God for us, that he gifts us your righteousness, that he rose again, validated it all, 
ascended, sits at the right hand, and gifted us your Holy Spirit to secure us and empower us in this walk that is worthy of the calling that we've been called. God, I pray as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning that we would celebrate this Jesus well who overcame Satan, sin and death by his broken body and his shed blood. In Jesus' name, amen.